Almighty God, as we come before you, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how uh, perfect and holy it is. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would open it up to us, that you would teach us your ways. Uh, Lord, please uh, work in our hearts and our minds and our lives today, not just through uh, this lesson, but through uh, the whole worship service and through your word. Please lead us, Lord, and, and guide us. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so a couple of things to, to say at the, at the start. Um, I want to first just remind us where we are and where we're going. Um, yes, I do have a sort of a plan of where we're going. Um, how we're going to get there is, is going to be a little topsy-turvy probably, but um, there is a goal, right? We're moving towards something, uh, and that something is that we're trying to move towards an understanding and an application of covenant theology as it relates to our church community. So our goal, where we want to get is to understand and then apply covenantal theology um, as it relates to our church community. So covenant theology is usually this overarching, all of scripture, right? It undergirds scripture. It shows us the plan of salvation and all the things that God has done. And we're in that, right? This is not something out there. This is our lived experience. It's what's going on when we go to church. It's what's going on when we have a church together. Um, covenant stuff is happening. So we want to understand it and then be able to apply it and say, okay, what does it actually mean? Where are we deficient? Um, where are we strong? So my, my hope is that we can get to this point um, where we can honestly and scripturally evaluate ourselves as a church, um, evaluate where we're strong, evaluate where we're weak, uh, and then have the tools to say, uh, how do we use our strengths best and how do we grow in our weaknesses? Right? There's a goal we're moving towards. Um, what does it mean? not just to understand, but apply covenantal theology uh, for our church and then be able to evaluate ourselves and say, where are we strong? Where are we weak? Um, and then have the tools to say, well, how do we use our strengths in the best way? How do we grow in our weaknesses, right? That's where I'd like us to get. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture where we're pushing towards, you know, covenant and, and community. These are, these are great words, but we want to put some, some boots on the ground and actually what does it mean for us. But before we get there, right, where are we now? We're in the middle somewhere. Uh, we're still kind of building some foundational pieces. We have a lot of good foundations, I think, already. We have a lot of foundational pieces already in place. Um, but we're still, we're still learning new things. We're still trying to cover some new ground and build some foundations that we can then stand upon when we're actually talking about our own church. And there'll be applications scattered throughout. It's not like we're only going to apply things at the end. Um, there's, and these are things that we're still thinking about and, and ruminating over as a church. Uh, so we're by no means, you know, constrained to just one or two things. Um, so let's do a little review, right? What's the church? What is the church broadly, big picture? What's the church? All the, all the elect of all God's people um, from all time, from all places, right? That's the church broadly, all the elect, all of God's people from all time and from all places. Um, what's the local church? Especially as it relates to the broad church.
What's the local church? Yeah, exactly. The, the local church is the visible manifestation or expression of that broad church, right? It's that broad church, but grounded in history in a particular time in a particular place uh, with a particular people. Uh, is the local church perfect? No. What's, what's lacking? Okay, holiness, so sanctification. Yeah, we are not fully sanctified as a people. What else? What else is lacking in the local church, just generally speaking? We're all sinners still struggling toward Christ's Yeah, we're all sinners. We're not perfect people. We are still being sanctified. If you have a membership in a local church, does that mean automatically you're elect? No, it doesn't. Not necessarily. So what does that mean? What's the implication? Yeah, some people in the local church are not believers. They are outwardly they're Christians. They're, they go to church, they're members. But that doesn't mean that everyone is necessarily regenerate elect, saved, going to heaven. It's because the local church is imperfect um, in a couple of ways, right? Some of that is just people being people, right? When Jesus was describing what the, what the, the gospel going out to the nations are going to be like, he said some seed fell on shallow ground and it, it sprouted really quickly, right? And it grew up really fast, but because it was shallow, there wasn't any depth. There was no roots. So when persecution came, right, those shallow seeds fell away. Um, some grow up but they're choked out by thorns, right? Which means the cares of the world choke out the faith that began um, and they fall away. But those that are planted on the good soil, right? They take root, they have deep roots, they endure. And Jesus's point is that um, in the church, right? There will be some who sprout up quickly, but fall away from persecution. There'll be some that sprout up and yet um, are choked out by the cares of the world. There are some that will sprout up and will stay sprouted and will bear fruit some 30, some 100, right? I think it's 10, 30, and 100, uh, 100-fold. Or another parable Jesus told was a man sows wheat in his field, but then an enemy comes and sows weeds, right? And now there's weeds and wheat in the same field. And Jesus, and Jesus in the parable, right, the man's servants say, shall we get all the weeds out? And he says, no, because that would root up the wheat, right? Wait until it's time. And then they will be gathered into the right places. Or sheep and the goats, right? To some, they'll come and say, Jesus, you know, I did a really good job. Don't you, aren't you proud of me? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Uh, but to his people, to the sheep, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the point is not how good you are. The point is whether you belong to Christ or not. And that's an act of God's free grace. Um, and so if you're ever struggling with doubt, what do you do? Try harder? You ask God, say, God, please save me. And he does not turn away those who seek him. So local church is imperfect. We're still growing. We're still being sanctified. There are, wheat, there are weeds among the wheat, uh, goats among the sheep. We're still growing. We still have a long ways to go. And so as we come to all these topics and subjects, we're not coming and saying, wow, look how, look how great we are. Look how far we've come. Look, look at all our great theology. We're coming at it saying we're not perfect. We have so much to grow in as people and as a church, right? And we want to understand better by God's grace 
where we need to grow, where we are strong, where we are weak. And so some of those foundational pieces of, of the, the, the bedrock that we're building upon is Christ. Right? Christ is the cornerstone, as Paul says, of the church, that the whole church is built upon Christ. Um, he's the evaluating, measuring stone. Everything is evaluated by Christ. And so then it builds out from there into covenant theology. So we talked about covenant theology as it relates to church communities in the last couple of weeks. And I, I've laid out four principles um, that we can draw. The first principle is that there are, there are two covenants. There are two covenants and two covenantal mediators, and you're represented by one of them. It can't be both. It's only one. So there's two options. You're either in covenant with God through Adam, or you're in covenant with God through Christ. And the second principle is that covenants create communities. Automatically, covenants create communities. So if you're in a covenant with God through Adam, that creates a community. And if you're in a covenant with God through Christ, that creates a community. And your, the third principle is your identity is tied to your covenantal community. Your identity is tied to your covenantal community. So that means that if you're in covenant with God through Adam, your identity is dead. You are dead, in, you are dead in your sins. You have fellowship with darkness. You walk in darkness. You do not have fellowship with the light. You cannot have fellowship with the light. Your standing before God is guilty as charged um, and uh, without any hope of salvation. That's your identity. Nothing, you can't do anything about it. All you will do is sin. You cannot do good. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's where you have your identity. The other flip side of that is that if you're in Christ and he has bought you and purchased you by his blood, that is your identity. That's who you are. Your standing before God is righteous because Christ has bought you with his blood. You have fellowship with the light and you walk in the light because Christ has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. If we love him, we walk in the light as he is in the light. <clears throat> so that's your identity. That's who you are. Right, And that's immutable because you're either in one or the other. You can't change your identity over here. You can't change your identity over here. So covenants, there are two covenants, two options. You're dead in Adam or you're alive in Christ. Covenants create communities. Your identity is tied to your community. And scripture teaches us to think in covenantal terms and not in the terms that the world wants us to think in. The world wants to say, well, it's really about the individual. right? It's really about... Uh, who you, what you want, who you are in your heart, right? You get to decide your identity um, in a sense, or in the collectivist terms, which is more like the group that you're a part of is your identity, right? That group, if you're white, that's your identity. If you're an American, that's your identity. If you're, um, if you're a comrade in the USSR, that's your identity. That's your highest good. That's what you're pursuing. That's where you have fellowship, Right. The world is always trying to, to make us think in some terms other than the covenantal terms that the scripture lays out. So we've been talking about <clears throat> and reviewing um, this, this sense of individualism, collectivism, these differing worldviews and approaches to people and to humanity and society and evaluating them. How does scripture tell us to think? What are these, what are these telling us to think? How, where do they lead? Right? What does individualism lead to? Um, and we've been talking about right, community and church, specifically this idea that in Christ we're unified. 
So if we are in one of these covenants, you're in one or the other, that's your identity. That means that's where your unity is, right? If you're in Adam, you can't have unity with someone in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you can't have unity with someone in, in, in Adam. Same thing, Paul says, the argument, what does Christ have to do with Belial, right? You can't mix and match these two different communities. They are completely exclusive. Um, that's why believers should not, must not marry an unbeliever. You can't mix those. Um, but if your unity is in your covenant, right, then and as we're thinking about what unity means, and that's where I want to go today, what does unity actually mean? Um, first, we can, we can think about what does the world say unity is? How does, how does individualism unite people? How does individualism unite people? We talked about this last week. On what basis in an individualistic society or church, and what, on what basis are people unified? Yeah. Yeah. What's what's good for me? What feels good? What what meets my needs? Any other thoughts? What in an individual it's hard to say. In an individualistic church or society, what unites people? Yeah. Yeah. Another way you could put that is is there's the shared values of personal freedom, right? That's what unifies is we all have the same values of personal freedom, right? That's what unites us. Yeah, Michelle. Along with that, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, and you don't tell me how to live my life. I'll respect your your truth, your truth. Sure. Yeah. Does that does that sound like unity? If it's uh, you do your thing, I'll do mine. That works for you. Doesn't work for me. I'm going to do my own thing. Does that sound like unity? Not really. It sounds like your fellowship, your unity is based upon this really fragile sense of of distance right the unity is actually distance uh, which is interesting if the church is a seeker sensitive church and everybody's that way mm -hmm. oh yeah we know meet my needs yeah right because what's what's really driving that what why is everyone there what yeah, it feels good. Yeah, it's about me. It's about what feels good. Uh, in other words, we're all here because we love Jesus. Uh, common interest is another way to put that. Because you could substitute anything in place of Jesus, and it would, it would be the same sort of idea, right? Just because you put Jesus on the label doesn't mean that, oh, automatically now it's good. It's okay to all be here because we love Jesus. Well, if you substitute anything else there, it doesn't sound very good. We're all here because we really like the coffee. 
after church. We're all here because because uh, Jamie makes the best fellowship meal things, and we just all want that. Uh, we're all here because um, we love Brett's preaching, or we're all here because we like Reformed theology and liturgy. Like you start putting other things in that place, and it starts to you start to see like that's those are good things, but those are not the central things. Those are not what actually unify us. Um, and if we're just here because of that, what's going to happen when the preaching changes or when Jamie starts making different kinds of food or when we start tweaking the liturgy or, or, or things start to, what's going to happen? You're going to leave. Yeah, you're going to go somewhere else where you like the preaching or where there's someone who's a good cook or there's a, there's a liturgy is what you want or it makes you feel really good when the worship pastor strums his guitar while he prays. Um, like all those things will not actually unify you. They will actually just create division. It's very fragile. It's very superficial. It's a common interest, common goals. These things provide a semblance of unity. But ultimately, it's self-centered and it's transactional. Ultimately, individualism is self-centered and transactional. So that means that self-centered means my desires, my needs, my goals are, are uh, more important than yours, ultimately. My desires, my needs, my goals are more important. They are my most important uh, truths, so to speak. And transactional means that I expect to receive just as much as I give, if not more. Right? I expect, transactional means I expect to receive just as much as I give, if not more. So individualism is self-centered and transactional. Michelle? The things you listed with Jamie's food, the style of preaching, you know, kind of music, could all those... Are, are all those things idols? Can that be idolatries? Anything can be an idol when, when, it's, when you make it an idol. But that doesn't make it a bad thing in itself, right? Like it, we can like Brett's preaching. That's okay. We can like Jamie's food. We can like Reformed theology and liturgy, and we can actually praise God for those things and embrace them wholeheartedly as long as we're giving thanks to God and saying this is from God. This is a gift. This is not an idol. You know, Anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. Um, and individualism is very good at making these kinds of things idols. Um, so individualism cannot truly unite people. Right? Transactional and self-centered people, um, no surprise, are self-centered and transactional. And that leads to dysfunction. It leads to division. It leads to pain. It leads to... Um, not just not just issues, but issues that are never resolved, right? We just all, it, it will tear apart a church. It'll tear apart a society. Um, true unity is not found in our common interests and our common goals. We have common interests and we have common goals because of our unity. So true unity is not found in our common interests and our common goals. Common interests and common goals come from our common unity. So because we are unified, now we have common goals, right? Now we have the same goal, which is what? What's the goal of the church? 
What's the mission of the church? What do you guys think? Glorify God. And specifically, when Jesus came and gave the Great Commission to his disciples, what did he say? What's the Great Commission? Go out and make disciples. That's the goal of the church. That's our goal, is we want to be discipled. And to be a disciple of Jesus means you become more like Jesus. We have a common goal, and it's to become more like Jesus. But that doesn't unite us. What unites us is the fact that Jesus, the one we're trying to emulate, came and died for us. He shed his blood for us. He redeemed us. He adopted us into his family. His spirit moves in the world, bringing people into the wedding feast and uniting them to Christ uh, and knitting them together into a body, building them brick by brick into a building, uh, adorning them as a bride preparing to see her bridegroom. All these images of the, of the, of the church in scripture, right, are, are how the Lord is showing us when you're brought into Christianity, it's not an individual thing. It's not you and Jesus, and also some other people are here. It's you are brought into something bigger than just you, and you are unified to him and to other people by what he has done and through his spirit. Um, this means that as we are brought into his church, we are unified to each other. And we'll talk about what that means in, in just a little bit. Um, real quick. Last week made some applications, made a little made an application that as we as we think about individualism and and covenantal thinking, um, individualism grows, right? It, it begins in our hearts and it grows and it can take root. And so when we what we're one of our applications is if we don't want our church to be like this, if we don't want our church to be individualistic, then where do we start? Where do we start dismantling? This individualism, this this false sense of unity, where do we start? Yourself. With yourself, and then what? Charlie? I think just to kind of connect to things like the world age of individual unity versus what you know the unity that scripture calls us to. The thing that matters I think is at the top is like a hierarchy. So the world of unity is me, which is why it's kind of a conundrum. We're not all me, we're all individual needs. But to answer your question, I think it, it has to start with the thing that we have all, that God calls us to elevate, which is Himself, His Son. And so it begins with the first thing that we're supposed to gaze upon, which then influences the later reflections, which would be me, right? Then Calvin touches on this in his institutes where it says, first you need to know God, and then you can know thyself, right? Um, so the chief thing seems to be like the question, like, what is the thing that you lift up? That's the thing that is supposed to be the thing that unifies. Yeah. Yeah. What, what truly unifies us is not when we're looking at me and me as the center of all society and the center of the church and the center of the universe, but when we're looking at God and putting his word above all else. So, we, we begin, right, with our own hearts. We begin saying, where am I giving into self-centeredness and transactionalism and individualism and thinking that I'm, I'm the highest good and my desires and my needs have to be met or else 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a tantrum. Um, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the church. And then if we want our church to grow in this way, what well, made the application last week that if we want our church to grow in this way, we have to start doing that in our hearts and we have to start doing it in our homes. Um, I just, I just want to, I said this last week, and I'll clarify a little bit. Um, the family is, is a church in miniature. The family is a church in miniature. We learn and we model what true community is at home first. So we learn and we model what true community is at home. And we learn and model either how to hold God's word above our own desires, or we learn how to self-justify. We learn how to live for ourselves. We learn how to paper over sins. We learn uh, how to do all these things at home. In other words, where do we primarily learn and model the second greatest commandment? At home, in our families, because the family is a church in miniature, and it's a building block. Our church is made up of families. And so if there's a bunch of individualism in all of our families, that's going to translate to our church. That's going to affect our church. But when we are taking those roots out, right, and making God's word and him the center of our hearts and our homes, that will also translate into our church. That will also translate into our community here together in Christ. Um, Paul David Tripp says this, there's no more fundamental, readily available, consistent context than the family in which to teach what it means to live in community. The family is a community and it models a view of community, whether it realizes it or not. The family teaches and models what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, where it violates that standard at every point and teaches a self-centered individualism. So the family is, is super fundamental to how we view community and our church. Um, because the family teaches and models what it means to love your neighbor or what it means to be self-centered and transactional and an individual and individualism. And so I just want to add one more clarification to that idea because I don't want it to sound like works righteousness where, okay, you know, go forth and, and be better. No, where do we start if we want our families to be like this? If we want our families to be gospel-centered, full of God's word, saturated and centered on God and not on individualism, but where God is the center of our hearts and our families, and that's translating into our church, where do we start? Well, you start by praying for it because this is a work of the Spirit. You start by praying consistently and sincerely, God, please do this in my family. Please do this in my heart. And please do this in my church. Bring us into that true unity in Christ where the word is held most highly, where we are centered on God, where Jesus Christ is, is the basis of our unity and not our desires, not our common interests and common goals, but it's about Christ. And then then what you should do is start saturating your home and your life and yourself with the word of God. Right? You pray for it, and then you saturate your life and your home with the word of God. What, one sec, John. I just want to quote Deuteronomy 6 real quick. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. and You shall teach them diligently to your children. And she'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. She'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, saturate your life and your family with the word of God. John? 
kind of parallels the covenant made by personal as well. <coughs> Yeah. Because we covenant with our children to work them and care for them. And they owe us something that, like, in return, that same way. And then to model that, not just with the parent or child, but with the siblings as well. Yeah. Like, a family looks exactly like Yeah. Well, it's a covenant community. And Paul says that marriage is Christ in the church. Covenant community, right? These, these things all all flow together. Um, does that make sense? hope I added a couple helpful clarifications to what I said last week. Any questions or anything? Okay. Um, and you f feel free to always talk to me after or, or give me a call if you want. Um, so we don't have a ton of time, but I wanted to briefly... Um, we're talking a lot about unity, and we all have heard that word, I'm sure, a lot. Um, but what does it actually mean? So I just, let's, let's think about what unity is. Let's think about what Scripture actually teaches us about unity. Because the world talks about unity. Right? And if the world talks about unity and says that unity is this really good thing, but then you see the effects where it's actually being pushed in, a, in the wrong direction. That should give you a clue that what they mean by unity might not mean, might not be what scripture means, right? So we have to go back to the word. What is unity? And let's evaluate what it actually is from scripture. So first, I'm going to pitch it to you. What is unity scripturally? Can you think of any, any images in scripture that showcase unity or demonstrate what unity is? Any verses in particular? Any thoughts, John? Okay. Yeah, circumcision was a sign of the covenant, right? To the point where if you didn't circumcise your son, you were actually cut off from the covenant. You were disunified. Steve? Yeah. 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 The two shall become one flesh. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a that's a really powerful image. But it does it happen literally? Like, do do you kind of fuse into one kind of weird dis, disfigured? It's, it's a weird image. Um, Physically, right, you don't, you don't start to look like your wife and your wife doesn't start to look like you. You don't become literally like one. Um, but something happens in marriage, clearly, scripturally, that is far deeper than just, oh, yeah, you, you guys are, yeah, you're, you're, you're one. Scripture means something when it says that, right? Scripture means something when it says that the two shall become one flesh. So let's keep pushing. What is unity? Charlie? It has nothing to do with the conversions of the work and the labor that we do. It's not just doing whatever we want. Like Christ says, like the house divided cannot stand. And in that picture, is if everybody in the house is working to, to different ends and against each other, it won't last very long. So we, we're unified in, as you've been discussing, identity, uh, but we 
one, two, one day. So it's one name, one word, one day. Um, and so I think that's important. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's helpful, right? Um, we, as we are unified in Christ, right? That 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 ties to our identity. That unity has to do with identity. Um, if you're in the kingdom of darkness, you cannot have unity with the kingdom of light. You cannot. It doesn't mix. It doesn't work. Um, which tells us something about unity, right? It tells us that it's not just. It, unity isn't simply overcoming differences. Because if that were true, then the, it would just be a matter of overcoming our differences with unbelievers, with someone who's not in, in Christ. But we just have to overcome our differences with them, and then we can be unified. No. Something, something prevents that and allows us to be unified in Christ, but prevents unity in someone who's not in Christ. Something's going on. John? Okay. But I'm also told to love my enemies. Does that mean I'm unified to my enemies? Okay. But Okay. Yeah, so what, what I'm pushing at is whose love and what kind of love unifies. Because I could love someone who's not a Christian, and I'm commanded to. That doesn't mean I'm unified to them. doesn't mean I'm bonded. That doesn't mean that I'm, I become one with them. No, something, something different has to happen where it actually has to be an external force. But so you're right. I think love, love is what draws us all together, but it's whose love and how. It's Christ's love. Christ's love for us is what. It, let's let's turn to an example. Um, you guys see those trees out there? They're all really pretty. Um, do you see when you look at one tree? Do you see one tree or do you see like a, a hundred trees? That was a really bad way of stating that. Um, <laughs> when you look at a tree and you see branches and needles and leaves. And, and different parts of it, uh, does this mean that fundamentally that tree is divided? No. Fundamentally, it's one, right? Even though there's a bunch of different bits, right? There's leaves, and the leaves are not the same as the bark, and the bark is not the same as the roots, and the roots are not the same as the trunk, but yet it's one tree. It's not a bunch of different trees all banded together for, for common good. It's one tree. And if you want to be part of the one tree, you have to be connected to it, right? If you lop off a branch off the tree, what happens to that branch? It dies. 
It dies. It ceases to be what it was. So John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Romans 11. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, he continues to say some other things. But his point, Paul's point, right, is that if you're connected to the root, you have life. If you are connected to the vine, you have life and you'll bear fruit. Apart from the vine, apart from the root, there is no life. Right? So you could be, uh, if you're cut off from the root, if a branch is cut off, it dies. That's, uh, that's the image of unity, right? Is that I'm a branch and I'm connected to Christ and I'm connected by him, by his love for me. And it's like the life that stems from the roots and the life goes up from the, from the roots and it spreads out into all the branches and leaves and gives them life and fruit. That's the love of Christ. That love, that life is his love coming up from the root, which is Christ, and spreading out to the branches and to the leaves and giving life and giving fruit. That's our unity, is that I'm connected to the tree and so are you. You're a leaf right next to me. You're a branch on the same tree. We're connected to the same root. And, and we are receiving the same life, the same love. And that unifies us and connects us, which means it's a work of God. And it means that the only way to then lose it is, well, you, you can't. If you have the life of Christ, you can't lose that. Right? Not unless someone comes off, someone comes along and, and chops you off, which the devil is trying very hard to do, uh, but he can't because Christ strengthens and holds us together. We are unified in Christ. So it's not about my works. It's not about how good I'm doing. It's not about making sure that I'm bearing enough fruit or God is going to come along and chop me off. I'm connected to Christ. I'm connected for life forever. And I have life in him. And I'm unified to you because of that forever. So this is the first kind of unity that we have. Um, we have, we have unity as Ephesians 4 says, um, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing within one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're out of time, but we'll talk about this more next time. Um, we have unity automatically because we're connected to Christ. We have a covenant community automatically because we're connected to Christ. That community is our identity automatically because we're connected to Christ. And that is a gift of God given to us through the spirit as he works in us through the bonds of peace, through Christ. Um, so we'll, we'll talk more about this next time about what unity is. There's, there's plenty more to say, um, but that's our, that's some of our fundamental stuff. Does that make sense? Okay. If it doesn't, feel free to talk to me and we can talk about more. Um, but we're out of time, so let's pray uh, and ask God to prepare us for worship.
Lord, as we come before you, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you that you have purchased us and unified us, and that we are now made so sure in your covenant that we can never be shaken. Lord, we, you will never cut us off. You will never separate yourself from us because of the love of Jesus, his work on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Please help us to, to cling to you, to cling to these promises. That when we doubt, we would not turn to ourselves or to our own works, our own abilities, but we would turn to the work of Christ, to the truths in Scripture. And Lord, pray that you would work these truths in our hearts and in our families and in our church. Please grow us, Lord. Grow our families, that we would uh, learn and model what it means to love each other as Christ has loved us, to be communities of, of, uh, of the truth of your word and of the gospel. And you grow our church in these things, Lord. Grow our church in this unity. We thank you for all you're doing. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.